Chapter Eighteen of His First and Last Appearance by Francis J. Fenos J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eighteen, in which the audience is surprised beyond the wildest dream of Professor Himmelstein, and Philip is the most astounded boy that ever sang in public on the stage. But Mr. Dunn was by no means the only person in the Paps Theatre on that eventful night who was surprised by the unlooked-for appearance of Philip Lachance. In the front seats of a private box, flush with the stage, and so near it that she could reach to the footlights, with the hand, sat Jenny Hume, with her brother, who, on this bright evening, looked, if possible, more than ever like a glorified pussy-cat. On Philip's appearing, Jenny uttered a sound of awe. "'Something's going to happen!' she exclaimed, and she opened eyes and mouth. Walter said, "'Gee!' and tried to whistle softly while kicking the legs of his chair." aunt cried jenny turning to a middle-aged lady who was seated beside an old gentleman of distinguished appearance aunt that's isabella chance's brother i'm sure it is you know i told you they went back to new york i wonder how he comes to be here indeed how strange said mrs easton father she said to the old man father there's a mystery here that boy who ought to be in new york interests me very much poor little dear what a sweet engaging manner he has mr hammond the father of the lady who just addressed him had a severe unsmiling expression just now however the severity melted away as he witnessed the pretty handshaking scene between mr dunn and philip upon my word bell he exclaimed i never saw anything prettier in my life that boy would interest any one there's something about the little fellow's expression which touches me very much "'I feel just as you do, father,' returned Mrs. Easton. "'Jenny has told me all about the little Lachances, who came and went like a pretty dream, and I was interested in them even before I saw this boy. Jenny is quite in love with Isabel. If she's as engaging as the boy, it is small wonder.' "'Oh, I do wish Mama had come,' said Jenny. "'I heard Philip sing once. By the way, why do they call him Mary and Filippo? There must be something wrong.' I feel as if I were in the plot of a good story-book. There's a genuine mystery. I wonder how it will turn out. In the front seats, and not far from Jenny, sat Sophie and Edna. Having stared thus far at the young soprano, they were now expressing their utter astonishment and dumb show to Jenny, who, in turn, answered by mystic shrugs and gestures. Presently Jenny's eyes fell upon Professor Himmelstein. Again she started, again she gasped. Again her eyes were open and her brows raised. "'Oh, aunt!' she exclaimed. "'I've seen that man there at the piano before. Where was it? Oh, yes, he was the man we saw at the station running to catch the train that Isabel left on. Do you remember him, Walter?' "'That's a fact. That's him, sure enough,' answered Walter, wriggling in his seat like a surprised eel. "'I say, Jenny, it is like a story-book.' "'I'd give anything to understand.' cried the girl fervently. Ah, there they begin. At the first chord from the piano, a silence suddenly fell upon that great assemblage. The prelude was played, the critical moment had come, and Philip, with the skilled manner of one who had sung in public all his life, slipped easily and sweetly into the melody. His opening notes, full and true, though not very loud, sent a thrill through every listener. At first it was only the voice, so free, so sweet, which charmed each listening ear. But very presently it was something far above and beyond the reach of musical sound. 
for almost at once his mobile face took on an expression which told the audience that with this little soprano music and feeling were moving hand in hand while his tongue syllabled the holy night his soul saw it saw the stars saw the earth waking from its slumber of sin and of death for philip there was no audience the things that were had become as things that are not and at one bound his imagination had leaped across the centuries and gained the fields that lay still and breathless in the solemn midnight of the olden days for philip there was no audience at all in its stead there was a vision a great light shone down upon the plains a multitude of the heavenly hosts bathed and floated in its splendour and the shepherds were either face downward upon the ground or holding their arms before their eyes lest the splendour of god should strike them dead when philip came to the line a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices his voice sank so low that many held their breath instinctively lest they should lose the slightest fraction of the lovely sounds on the word thrill his voice so quivered that not only the sound but the thing signified passed from heart to heart like echoes among the answering hills the song had become more than a song it had risen to a drama and its subject was the redemption fall on your knees all the fullness of the vibrant power of that extraordinary voice went into these words one might fancy that the singer was an inspired and majestic messenger from on high calling upon all to adore oh hear the angel voices with the ending of this phrase his voice died away and there was an eloquent pause while philip and with him the audience seemed to be listening for the strains which once made the night of nights resound with glory to god on highest and on earth peace to men of good will while philip thus paused the piano was silent and the auditors were silent it was as though each one had caught his breath and was waiting in tense expectation to catch the accents of the heavenly choirs then suddenly with triumph and joy in every tone with an echo of the gladness born of the gladdest tiding that ever fell upon mortal ear with inspiration born of perfect faith he traveled forth in a volume of loveliness Noel, Noel, O night when Christ was born. Noel, Noel, O night, O night divine. The first stanza was finished, and Philip, who was little of an angel, despite his voice and very much of a boy, glanced cheerfully and complacently upon the audience, which, though he knew it not, he had bewitched. A moment before, he had been on the plains of Bethlehem. He had brought the audience along with him, and left them there with the angels. But he... He himself bounded in an instant from the first to the nineteenth century, and was back in Milwaukee, and in the Paps Theatre, looking about at the sea of faces, and wondering why so many people were wiping their eyes with their handkerchiefs. The professor, meanwhile, was playing the concluding bars. Poor old Professor Himmelstein no longer feared. He had forgotten everything in the music, and was as a mortal who had been raised to the skies. Those who had tittered at him a few moments ago now looked at him in wonder, his head was thrown back, and his eyes were raised in an ecstasy. For him there was no longer either space or time. He began the prelude to the second stanza with perfect phrasing. There is inspiration, inspiration born of that voice, and every touch of his fingers. Philip's eyes, meanwhile, had happened to fall upon Jenny. She was watching him, and, though there were tears in her eyes, she broke into an April smile of recognition. Philip now felt that he was at home. How nice it was that Jenny should be there, and beside her sat Walter, with a smile that defied measurement. Philip scarce had time to nod to them, and to observe the lady and the gentleman who sat behind them, 
and Professor Himmelstein's prelude launched him into the second stanza. The sweetness, the unconscious pathos, were still with him, but the inspiration of the first stanza was lacking. Philip remained on the stage, remained unconscious of the sights and sounds around him, yet though he led not the way, he succeeded in keeping his hearers whither he had already brought them on the wings of sound. However, as he went on in the second stanza, the music and the words gradually drew his thoughts and feelings back to the hills where the shepherds kept watch. Although his eyes were still fixed upon the two children in the private box, they soon lost sight of what was before them and looked into the far east and the far times, when night was truly made divine. Again the inspiration returned, again his voice rang out with all the spirit of angelic joy. The effect upon the audience was more striking than before. Toward the end of the stanza, Philip was brought back again to the reality of his surroundings by the slight movement of the lady in the private box. Overcome by the tenderness of the boy's voice, touched as she had never been touched before with the sweetness and love of the Christ-child, she bowed her head, putting her hands to either temple. Philip stared. Professor Himmelstein played the prelude to the third stanza, and, when the time came, struck the chord which was to guide the sweet voice but no voice was heard. He waited a moment, then played the prelude once more. Again he waited. His voice was turned toward the people, and, raising his eyes, he noticed a strange stir. Many were gazing in amazement toward the stage. With a shiver, the professor looked up, and there he saw a spectacle which he shall never forget. Oblivious of his surroundings, Philip, with his eyes fixed upon the woman, whose head was still bowed, was walking slowly across the stage, his face pale and his bosom heaving. He stopped directly in front of the box, a look of wonder, of incredulity upon his countenance. The silence had become painful. Just then the woman raised her face. At once, Philip's expression of wonder changed to an exceeding joy. "'Why, Mama! he cried, in a voice which, though pitched low, was so distinct that it could be heard throughout the house. They told me you were dead, and on the instant he leaped from the stage into the box and threw his arms about the woman's neck. A moment later he drew his head back to look into the dear face. At once the light of gladness went out of his eyes, and the warm blood mantled his face. "'My dear boy,' said the lady, who, though thoroughly amazed, remained mistress of herself, "'my dear boy, what do you mean?' and while she held his hands, her gentle eyes looked with eager inquiry into his. At the sound of her voice, the disappointment on Philip's face was unmistakable. He scarcely heeded Mr. Dunn calling upon the people to leave quietly, scarcely heeded the puzzled Jenny, who, with Walter, had placed herself as a screen between him and the audience. "'Oh, I thought you were my mother, ma'am,' he said in tones of bitter disappointment, and forthwith the tears sprang to his eyes. Try as he might, he could not force them back. Philip began to weep. He checked his sobs manfully, and went on with a strange quiver in his voice. I saw you with your head bowed down the way she used to do, and I was sure you were my mother. I never thought she was dead. And then when you looked up and I saw your face, it was Mama's face all over, only looking softer and paler like you had been sick. Oh, but you do look so like her, ma'am, and I did never believe she was dead, and I beg your pardon for acting so. As Philip went on speaking, the old gentleman was bending down at his side, 
and observing his every look tone and gesture with an intensity beyond description the lady was fast losing her wondrous control she went pale then red then pale again her bosom was shaken with emotion her lips trembled suddenly eagerly quickly she gasped tell me quick my dear what was your mamma's name mrs lachance but her maiden name dear agnes hammond oh my god cried mrs easton throwing her arms about the boy's neck no my dear i am not your mamma but your mamma's sister end of chapter eighteen